back, everyone. It's me, Matt Tinney. And Jen Earhart. And again, we get the famous Jen. I'm back. Yeah. She's back. I'm back. Jen went on a ride-along. That's right, Matt. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I think, My uh, very first. did it make you have a better appreciation or understanding of law enforcement? Oh, Lord, yes. <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah. did. So, tell me about it. Um, okay, so... Yeah, my very first ride along. Again, I somewhat still new to cop culture, and I actually I don't know if you know, I didn't know a single cop in my entire life before coming to work here, except for really? our school resource officer, Officer Turner, who was fantastic. But anyways, that was the only person I ever knew. No really? family members, nothing. Mm-mm. Interesting. So I had like no idea what to base right anything off of. So, yeah, I got kind of, I, I said, just happened to mention in a conversation that I thought it'd be cool to do one. And then, like, two weeks later, I ended up, you guys were, like, pushing me to, like, right. do it. Um, so I went with um, one cop that I've gotten to know. Um, it's the wife of a detective here in the crisis intervention unit um, at APD. Uh, so I went out with her for, I don't know, a good seven or eight hours um, and got to play cop. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it ended up, it was supposed to be shorter, but our last call, it took I a long time. yeah, we ended up in I, I had to go to the police academy. I don't know if you knew this. I ended up having to go to the police academy and then like getting picked up, and my car was at the substation because we what? ended up. Yeah. No, I did not so, know anyways, so, anyways, anyways, <laughs> that's a boring story, but. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really neat. We did all kinds of stuff. What was the most surprising thing about it? I don't know if it, um, <laughs> the multitasking, I will call it. Yeah. What, <laughs> what, what type of multitasking? So I was surprised to see the radio on, like the police radio yeah. on, then the car radio on, the tough book. Right, the computer. Uh, the, the computer, the laptop in the middle, phone out, um, and us driving. And um, the detective or officer that I was with, could be doing three or four different things on top of driving. Um, And that, like, I didn't realize that you guys, I mean, she could drive the steering wheel with her knee and, like, be looking at the road, but (laughs) typing, not even looking at the computer, but, like, typing. Were you terrified? Oh, my God. I was like, are you, is this how you drive every day? This is a setup. This is a prank. I I was like, this is not safe. Um, The other thing I said that was kind of silly is that when we when I first got to her substation, she gave me a tour of like you know here's where evidence goes, here's where we lock people up. Um, and at the end, I go, okay, so where's your desk? Because I I just you know thought like yeah. she had this is big substation with all these desks, but those are all for like sergeants and lieutenants. Yeah. And I go, so I was like, where's your desk? And she's like, I don't have one. If I need a computer, I'll sit in like the conference room. But her desk is the car. Yeah, no, and but that's she lives out of yeah, that thing. The yeah. only thing you've had so far of experience in law enforcement is the detective side, which right. is completely different. It's so different. What What are the big differences? Um, I just didn't realize how much of her day was truly spent in the field. Right, like in the car. Like in the car. Like all day. It's literally yeah. the whole day, um, and how long a call can take. You, we went on things that I that? thought. Well, um, one of the calls we responded to was um, a woman's vehicle had been broken into in a grocery store parking lot. Okay. So I thought we were just going to go and take the report, but we get there and the lady's upset and which, you know, great job, like interacting, calming this lady down, blah, blah, blah. Then um, we called someone out to get fingerprints because this this lady worked for a company that had a safe in the vehicle and the safe had been broken into. Um, Yeah. Never so, heard of such so a she's thing. like a lady that brings product to the grocery store. Okay. So she keeps and it's like she keeps all the change. So the vehicle van had been broken into okay. and they broke in the safe. So we had to take her statement. Then we um, the the manager of the grocery store comes out and he's got video camera footage. Then we go inside and look at that. And then we got to come back out. And then we're talking to the people that did the fingerprints. I mean, it just took. So much longer, right. and like in in between us getting things and us waiting on things, we're going back to the car, starting the report, having this lady write down things that got stolen, blah blah blah. And I was just like, 
and then some things took, you know, no time at all. So there was one where it was um, a stolen car, but it was on private property, and it hadn't been reported as stolen or something like that. So we couldn't do anything. But how is it stolen? So, it, well, we got there. The, I don't know if the ignition had been broken out. Like, it clearly just looked like stolen. a stolen car, and the stuff had been gone through. But no one had reported it missing, and it had just been right. left at this restaurant for, like, over a, a week. Time. Yeah. So that was one call. And that was kind of, you know, a little boring, but... So, you know, I was just, like, I couldn't figure out how to tell how long a call would take. And it was interesting because the officer I was with was like, you have to come on a better day because this is so boring. And I was like, um, <laughs> this is way more than I, like, thought it would be. Because, you know, I, I just, it was constant, like, yeah. just crap to have to deal with all day. Right. It's one after another after another. Did yeah. you guys get any breaks? Much at all? Yeah, so um, we ate lunch in the car. Uh, there was a teenager reported missing, so we had to go to this high school, and then like we sat in the car and ate there because uh, we had some free time. Um, I think we probably could have had longer time for lunch, but she was taking calls so that I could, you know, right. see them. Um, so that was a break, and then we took a break to use the bathroom. Well, that's nice. Yeah, you don't have to good. pee in the car. I was that's wondering, nice. especially like female cop, because I she wears a gear, huh? yeah, she wears so much equipment, and I imagine her going to the bathroom is probably harder than you know than a guy than a guy yeah. with all that equipment. Yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And plus, because you know, all your equipment is like you have guns, you yeah. have weapons on there, so I would think it'd be a lot difficult to go to like a public restroom. I, I don't know where like, do you put it. Right, I didn't. It's on the ground. Someone could grab it. And that's something, like, I kind of wanted to ask her, but also is a little creepy. Probably, like, is where it? do you put your it? gun when yeah. you go to the bathroom? I don't know. <laughs> so, you should send her an email and ask. I know. I'll follow up. Follow-up question for you. <laughs> that's not creepy. Um, <laughs> what did you think of all the paperwork? Do you think there was a lot more than you thought? Or? I wasn't. So I think I was expecting the paperwork because I, I oh, know about it right. now. What I wasn't expecting is, again, all these devices and Everything happening on the the tough book, the KDT, the calls going out, her seeing where other people are. There's a chat feature on there. She's chatting, you know, with people. Some of her officers are texting or calling her to follow up. Right. The radio's going off. That's what, like, really threw me for a loop. I was just, like, so surprised. Do you think all that uh, extra stimulus can mess with people? You know... So I sort of debriefed on my ride along with some officers. Again, they're the detectives. That's so a little different about that because this is one of the things that like surprised me the most. And the way everyone explained it to me was just like that becomes your normal, right? Like you almost can tune things out except for the things that you need to get, and you don't think about it. It's not like you're multitasking. That's just your environment and what it is, which is so interesting to me because. <laughs> I would think at first, if you were an officer, that would be very stressful. Right. You have like three or four different things to be thinking of constantly. Right. No, I think it would because it, it, the times that it comes up, and I guess I've never really thought how to explain it is like during a CIT class, mm-hmm. sometimes we have outside people who are like, why do they have their KDTs up or why do they have their, their laptops? I'm like, well, they're working on paperwork. Well, it's distracting. I'm kind of like, when you take it away, officers, we fidget. Yeah. Like in classrooms, like someone's always there, they're writing something, doodling or tapping mm-hmm. something. And I think it's because we're always around so much stimulus. You put them in a classroom so setting. True. And it's just hard. It's honestly, it's like, it's better to give them a little something to do because it's like, if they don't have two or three things going on, they're more likely to not listen to you. I feel like I picked right. this up from here. Like even you guys, I mean, it's not to the degree that it is for officers in the field, but like. There's always, like, a million different things going on, and I think sometimes I'm like, well, you know, did, did Detective Tenney hear me? Or, you know, there's, right. like, three people at his desk, he's on his phone, and he's, like, texting or, you know, whatever. But it's like, that's just, like, what you guys do. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes if you don't have that, you do fidget. Right. And you get bored, and then maybe you zone out. Yeah. No, I, I think it's hard. And I think, especially, like, we're going to have some new detectives coming. If you if you get officers straight from the field in here, oh, yeah. it's a lot different pace. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, because it sounds like you guys just went call to call. It wasn't like call, oh, let's wait till the call comes. Maybe I'll try to stop a car. It was just like there's enough calls holding. You guys just went call Yeah, to call which to call. I think was 
surprising or you know when I tell people that that the shift I was on you know for here it's a pretty slow it's a really the nicer neighborhood in the middle of the day right so it's kind of like oh you're not getting a lot but yeah we had missing teenagers um broken cars um theft and car accidents so I mean it was a, a full day yeah um and again, the officer I was with was like, you know, I wish you should come on a more exciting day. And I was like, this is actually plenty exciting for me. <laughs> describe her. Oh. I like the way you describe <laughs> her. I do. Oh, okay. I hope she never listens to this. Um, <laughs> so the officer that I went with um, is someone that I kind of, not kind of, I respect a great deal. She is um, a female cop and she's been on the force for about 15 years. And I think I really admire her because she is um, someone of short stature, kind of tiny person like myself. Um, so I see a little bit of myself in her and that she's a little soft-spoken, actually, if you're just talking to her one-on-one. Right. You know, she doesn't have her uniform on. She's just, she looks like me and she acts like me. She, I see that she is me, if that makes sense. Oh, my gosh. Like, you, you want to be a cop. No. That is exactly what you're saying right no, now. No, 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 no. Um, that's not what I'm saying. But she, I just, and I, I think it's so cool that she puts on that uniform and she just, if I can cuss, yeah. she kicks ass. Yeah. She really does kick ass. Like, she's really um, sincere with the people she meets in the field. She's helpful. She respects people. She, I watched her treat everyone with dignity and these things that we talk about, like, good cops doing she's a good cop but if you cry or someone like you know do something she didn't like hey man she'll put you in your place and like and people listen they like you know perk up they like take her seriously and i respect that because i think all the time like you know i never personally want to be a cop i don't think i have it in me but to think that someone that looks and sounds like me can do it and kick ass at it. It's just like, yeah, it's like something about like the strong female cop. And yeah, she doesn't have to be, she's not super hard ass. You know, she's like, she's obviously had to put up with like some shit because she's a female cop, but that doesn't make her bitter. And she doesn't have a chip on her shoulder. She's just a good cop. Right. Who is nice. But man, like, I just like, I always like kick my foot (laughs) when I think about her. I'm like, she's like, no, I, I think it would be hard to be a, a woman in law enforcement. Oh, yeah. I do. I really do. And I think because it's so selective, if there's another woman that works around you, you're, you're more likely to probably take calls together. Mm-hmm. You, and then sometimes when you go to, like, domestic violence stuff, if a man doesn't like a woman, you right. know, it, it gets tricky on that kind of stuff. It really, I think that they have it a lot worse. And it's I've seen um, this officer talk before to cadets about, you know, the fact that she is smaller and female and how she addresses that in the field. And she just owns up to it. And, you know, some of these things, like, I sometimes I have to have a man there, and that's just what it is. Um, but she doesn't have, again, like, there's no chip on her shoulder. She's right. just doing a good job out there. No, that's great. What? You sound like I'm in love with her, huh? <laughs> I just like, you're like, and I could picture myself in that position. And I see myself. We are recruiting. Yeah. I, I have. I will let everyone know. I've I've tried to. get I Jim truly to a think cop. there's some special, and I've told you this. Like I haven't figured out what it is, but there's some unique trait to, that all officers have. And you don't think you? And have. I do not have that. There's like some bone in your body that, like, I just wasn't born with that, like, <laughs> with that muscle. I probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. that could go very bad on that. Yeah. Yeah. Slippery slip. All right. Um, anywho. Wait, you, you really think that there's some trait there's we all some, have like, that you don't feel like you so, can do? You know, well, what about it do you feel like? What is it that if you're like, this is why I don't want to. I don't think I could do this or I wouldn't like this. I'm. T- there's too much. I don't want to say mom and me or like something like that. But like I'm always so, I don't know, maybe I just take and internalize too much. that I, So, you know. We responded to calls that weren't too traumatic, but, uh, you know, if I were to have to respond to a domestic violence call, I would take that with me. I, like, I think you, to be a good cop, you have to, like, be there for those people in that time and, and you, know, be, you know, do a good job, but, like, how do you walk away from that? Like, I don't think, right. same reason I can't be a social worker or a nurse or a doctor, like, those things, like, affect me, yeah. and I take them in, and I don't think I could have a job where right. I could just leave it. Like well, I need do you think a, it doesn't affect officers? 
I think it does because how couldn't it? But there's something about, you know, tough calls that like, yeah, maybe they stick with you, but I would think that you know how to, or you're trained how to deal with it or you like being there for those things. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be the person responding to a domestic violence call. I don't want to be the person responding to a car accident. I don't even want to be there to begin yeah. with, right? No, okay. like, well, no, that makes sense. So, like, just wanting, I don't know, like, you have to have some desire that, I don't know if it's, like, a thrill-seeking or a problem-solving or a little bit of both. Right. Kind of mixed together. But I don't have any desire to <laughs> no, be No, I think it's probably like a little that. bit of all of that. But I do, I think it's interesting you talk about, like, all the traumas you see and, oh, you guys have to have training on how to deal with that. Yeah, no. Right, right. <laughs> and so I think, to, yeah. I'm like, yeah, there's none. <laughs> but I, I think it's something that is lacking in law enforcement. But then, you know, like this, like how do you deal with vicarious oh, trauma? Mm-hmm. You know, like you constantly right. see victims, victims, victims. Right. How do you, because what happens a lot is I think we get jaded. We get calloused, you know, and it does, it's the only way we can cope with it. It seems like some of the cops I meet do have like a very like, not dark view of the world, mm-hmm. but they see a lot of people in their ugliest moments. Right. In their saddest moments. And, like, I think... And so they walk around in this this world that a lot of people don't have to see. Right. And it's the world that they live in. And sometimes it's just... It's dark. Yeah. And I uh, think so, it's, so it can be negative sometimes. Yeah. And it's hard, like, when you're 15 years in and yeah. your whole job and world revolves around tragedy. Right. You kind of just think that's how the whole world is. Or that's right. how the whole city is. What else did you see on it? Um, Why don't we get to the juicy stuff, Jen? What's what happened? The juicy stuff. What was Please your last do call? Tell. Oh God, um, it's really hot in this room we're in. Um, <laughs> just um, anywho, so the last call that we responded to was a car accident. Is this the one you're asking me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it was the very last call of the day. We had actually stopped at this officer's house to go to the bathroom real quick, and while we were there, of course, we got the call. Um, and we didn't know how bad the accident was, but I think, I think the officer knew that the, it already was a fatality or that it might be, a um, a fatality. Did you guys run with lights and sirens? Yeah. So what we ran code. Is that, yeah. Well, I was terrifying. Did you feel comfortable? No, I, it was kind of, and I hate saying this, but it was, it was exciting, obviously. Right. Like you always want to like know what it's like to be inside the cop car when they're like racing and like, where's that cop car going? What are they doing? Like, you know, it's like that thrill seeking yeah. moment. So I, did, I definitely had that. Um, the thing that was scary more was. Uh, the people not getting out of the way. Oh yeah, and that's I, interesting. Huh? This is, I don't know if this is probably not unique to Albuquerque, um, New Mexico, but man, is it a bad problem here? Is I think I don't know if people are just don't know the law or they can't hear. I don't know what the issue is, but people will not get over. Right. And I didn't realize how bad it was, and you know, and they don't realize that like you need to go over and stop. Right. Now do you see the importance of going? Well, I knew it. Did anyone just stop, like, right in the road? Yeah, no, we were at some points when there there were moments when we were stopped and at a red light or maybe at something where a car could have told, there was no one to their right. They could have gotten out of the way, and they didn't. I think on our, it was about a 10-minute drive maybe to the call, probably less, um, Actually, don't know. I mean, it was it was a short ride, but kind of long enough where we had to go through several intersections, that sort of right. thing. Um, three or four people that didn't get out of the way, and I was just, man, I've never been so angry. Did you want to shake your fists at them as you drove? Yeah, by? and it's drove, drove by. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, no, it's so it's that's just stupid. Yeah, honestly, I don't, and I don't know what that comes from. I don't know if that's uh, ignorance, or if they are just. <laughs> I'm picturing like someone who can't hear. I don't. I don't know what that it happens is. Happens a lot. Or that they're just. I don't know the better word to use, but asshole. <laughs> I, who doesn't know, get over for right. an emergency vehicle? A like, lot of people. That's and so sometimes disappointing. I don't know if people get overwhelmed. Like they get nervous all of a sudden. And cops come. That's with true. Lights. And because they think it's for. I don't know. One time, yeah. what always drives me nuts is when we're going and people just stop. Like literally, just stop. Because they and think you're like, pulling them over. No, because normally when you pull people over, then they actually go to the right. Like, if you're actually going after a car, for the most part. But, like, if you're trying to get to an emergency call, a lot of times people don't know what to do, so they just stop. 
yeah. in the middle of the they road. They just freeze. Yeah, and it's it's That's so frustrating. Strange. And yeah, it's so much more dangerous because there were times when we were really picking up speed, and we'd have to pump on the brakes because this person would just kind of freeze out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of what you were describing. Yeah. That's, that's bad. It's bad. Um, yeah. So anyways, we, um, we, we came, we were the primary officers on this or she was, I wasn't. Um, you're getting the bug. And so their fire department was there. Was it a fatality? It was, um, when I was there, um, Two people had died. Um, there was a third person in the same car, um, and he's he was still alive, but I'm fairly certain he did not make it. I mean, this car was, uh, I would have been saying, it's crumpled like a piece of paper. Yeah. Uh, I've just, it, just the way the metal just bent, it, just, it was odd. Um, and did then, it seem surreal? Did it seem very real to you? Yeah, it didn't seem real, honestly. Um, I, I was lucky to be with a great officer who stopped, you know, and said, hey, so let me check the scene. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. hey, came back. There are, you know, this is a fatality. Like, I want to make sure you're okay. How are you feeling? How is, because, and when we were there, this was a, a particularly bad accident. Obviously, right. it was a fatality, but um, both cars had flipped. One of the cars was inside of a, in, in a tree. Um I, and I think a lot of people there haven't seen accidents. Even some of the people responding, other right. officers hadn't seen accidents that bad either. Um, so when we got there, it was um, multiple fire trucks, um, paramedics. There was when I got there, one of the victims was kind of like on the ground, bleeding everywhere. I mean, it, and we got there really pretty quickly yeah. um, before any of the crime scene tape had gone. I mean, and there were unfortunately lots of people around. It was in a residential area. Um, so little kids seeing all this. I mean, it was a particularly, like, gruesome scene. scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, and and part of me wonders if, like, you know, it just felt so, it felt like you were in a movie. Honestly, right. it just, it seemed staged. So I think it, it didn't really hit me at the time, like, what I was fully seeing. But, right. um, yeah, I got to watch Fire and EMS do their jobs as well. But what did you do to cope with that? That's, I mean, seeing death in a, in a such a trauma situation would be hard. And exactly what you're saying, like, how do you not just take that in? Yeah, um, I don't know. I was lucky to be with an officer that I knew already who talked to me about it. You know, I think what was so weird to me, I don't know why this is a weird part, but we finally get, we're at this call for a long time, and we finally, um, the officer who I was with was teaching at the police academy that night. And so she had to we eventually had to leave to get to the police academy and we finally go we've been there like maybe three hours or something and as we're driving off someone flags us down a a civilian flags us down and it goes my grandson is missing he's three years old he can't like (sighs) just like we couldn't even get off that scene before the next crisis was already happening it's like you couldn't even there was no like Decompression. Decompression. There yeah. was no slowdown. We had, I mean, we had gone maybe a hundred feet and the next person was flagging her down. And it was just kind of like, it just like completely like took the, went down to my side. I don't know. Cause yeah. we were leaving and I felt like, okay, like I have some time away from the scene, from the noise, from the lights, from all of it. And then it just like Happens started again. all up again. I was yeah. like, that's what's hard. That's, that's hard yeah. right there. Um, but for me personally, you know, I, you know, I talk to you, obviously, I talk to other detectives. I think it's about, for me, it's just talking about it. No, I think that. And how I felt and what yeah. it was like and what I saw. And like, that's how I, I dealt with it. Right. And I think it, it's unique because, and I don't know if this is unique or not, but that you um, really, uh, you have the opportunity to talk to detectives. And, and not everyone does. Normally, as officers, we only feel comfortable talking to other officers. So, right. like, you go home and you don't want to talk to your um, loved one about the tragedy you saw or the, you know, violence or whatever. And, and you just hold it in. And then when it's cops talking to cops, it's just war stories. Well, I think you know? maybe one of the reasons I got a little lucky, too, is because I'm, I don't want to say I'm babied because I'm the civilian. But I think the detectives in the unit we work with... Um, 
go out of their way. Like when something like that happens to one of us, like because we work with mental health stuff, everyone was like, Jen, are you okay? Do you want to talk about this? Are you, you know, at Neil's, our our psychiatrist came and like, you know, talked to me like, you know, just to, and it it didn't make me feel like he was like analyzing me. He was just like, Hey, what's going on? Are you okay? Like I heard you, this happened, you know? And, and that made it easy to talk about. Like, I think when someone like corners you and like wants to, make you talk about your feeling like right. you know like or you know like yeah. pressures you into talking about it or wants you to say certain things it makes it more difficult for me right it's like i think everyone i don't want people to expect me to cry or to right be completely like i just want to be able to say how i felt about it and i felt like i could do that no i think it's good i'm glad that you could yeah it's it's hard to see it but i do also think it's it's unique what you said it doesn't seem real like almost like a movie yeah i feel like my first three years of cop that's kind of you the whole thing felt like i'm playing cop you yeah know, almost and then all of a sudden you realize like this is real life mm-hmm. it's not the movies and it's then it, it's it's hard not to see all the tragedies for what they are and it's sometimes it can be hard not to take on the emotions of all the victims yeah but it's one of those things that it's tricky and yeah i think it uh it causes a lot of problems with officers Mm -hmm. and I can see why. Yeah. I just, I think after my ride along, I have two maybe major takeaways. And one is just, I always, you know, I had my own feelings again, going before starting with law enforcement, how I felt about law enforcement in general. And that obviously very much changed by getting to work with you guys. But like, again, I work with detectives who sit, you know, not in offices all day, but you completely different work right. than the officers out there, you know, in the field in the trenches, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I have so much more respect for them. Like you don't realize how much crap that they deal with, that yeah. they deal with and like how long the call, the last call they were just on before they didn't even get to use the bathroom or get to eat their lunch right. before they had to come over here and hear how upset you are. Um, the officers that do really great handling that, I just have so much respect for and appreciate. Because um, I think it's easy for us to take that for granted, especially someone like myself who does who knows nothing about the day-to-day life of a cop. Right. And then the other thing is, like, how important officer self-care is. Like, yeah. after seeing, I think that the moment that it really hit me was when we were driving away from the accident and we got flagged down. When Sharon had been working all day and she had to go teach another class, you know, it was yeah. just like so deflating it was like one of those moments where i was like oh my god i just want to go home right like i just wanted to go home i was excited about going home and then it just i don't know it's just like you gotta like give yourself some time yeah like and it's so so important and i think it's hard i think it's even harder when when officers have families like children yeah because it's not like you can go home and just have time to yourself mm-hmm. and it's not like you get the time on shift either to yourself so it's like, where where do you get that self-time to kind of decompress yourself, which right. can be difficult. I think it eats at people. It's a hard one. I'm yeah. glad you're able to do it. Do you want I'm to do another ride along? I do. Don't want to be a cop, so <laughs> <laughs> you can stop recruiting. But um, It'll never happen. I will always recruit. Right. Um, which is good. You guys need more people. <laughs> but I think you'd be a great cop, Jen. I'm I'd be you. a terrible cop. No. But I would love to do a ride-along again. I think it was not necessarily fun, but like super interesting. So, yeah. That's awesome. Do you think other people that work around law enforcement should do ride-alongs? You think, would you encourage that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, so our unit is pretty unique in that we have so many civilians i would think right right? um that like directly work hand in hand right with cops and so we were talking to our policy analyst that works like within the department and he uh does analyzing some of the cad calls i don't know what cad stands for computer automated dispatch computer automated dispatch stuff so he was analyzing some data and like you know he's doing all this but he doesn't know what that actually looks like in real life and you know how the dispatch works and how the officer receives that on their end when they're in the car and so i think it's important to have an understanding to give us a context for what we're doing but it's also just like to know what you guys are facing like in general yeah no i i encourage anyone out there that's listening and if you guys are interested see if if your local law enforcement agency lets you to do ride-alongs and Mm -hmm. go out and see it it definitely changes perspectives oh yeah I think my biggest surprise when I became a cop was the amount of paperwork. I yeah. just didn't think you'd have so much paperwork. It's yeah. like, 
Oh, you just document the world. We're like historians. Well, we feel like. when you this st- happened, now document it. When you started, were they still doing it on paper? Yeah, yeah. It's a lot different now, now though, because you can just like you can type it right, type and tap through. And I was things. always much faster at typing, and yeah. so and my handwriting is horrible, right? And so it was a disservice to have us handwrite so yeah, because then you try to write things quick, you right? Know? You could be much more in detail if you're typing things. Right. Or you should be, I should say. But then some people still don't know how to type, you know? That's there, It is a generation generation thing, I would say. Yeah, probably so. But awesome. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Detective Jenny. For, that was very formal. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was thank very... Thank you, Matt. Uh, th- <laughs> well, thank you, Miss Earhart. Is, is that what you want? <laughs> Jeez. Well, enjoy the the lecture that's coming up, and it's from the CIT Knowledge Network. If you guys would like to join and see these in person and and go over calls, by all means, send Jen an an email at? J-E-A-R-H-E-A-R-T at C-A-B-Q.gov. Awesome. And if you guys want to see more about the project or other things we're doing, go to GoCIT.org. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time, if there's no more uh, discussion on that topic, just talking about alcohol withdrawal. I have we a, talked about other drugs. Um, somebody have something to say? Yeah, I'm sorry. TJ Camacho, LCPD. Hey, TJ. Uh, is there anything under the uh, DD waiver, development disabled waiver, that he could fall in under, say, once the homes are, are uh, taken out of place, the unlicensed ones? Um, I know UNM has a program for the DD waiver. It does. There's a there's a disability development disabled waiver. Yeah. But um, but for instance, like Camilla, with your with your client, is that person on the DD waiver? He's not. And one of the requirements for the DD waiver is being able to provide documentation that the disability, the developmental delay occurred before the age of 21. And because he's from ZUNI, um, I, the records just aren't, aren't there. So we, he yep. doesn't qualify for the DD waiver. Yeah. So it's a really good thought TJ, but, yep. um, but it would, I think it would only apply to those people who are on that waiver, as I understand it, that it's specific to their services and that it, it's not kind of all encompassing for standards for the, the general population of people who are ill from whatever type of illness. So TJ, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that you were on the line. Uh, now, are, is this a problem in uh, Las Cruces as well? Actually, and we haven't come across any, um, but our patrol officers do know what to look for, or who to ask for. And then like uh, to look for the, person in charge and if they can't find their person in charge then they'll probably let me know but nothing's come across my desk yet got it so like if if they went to a group home and they couldn't find somebody in charge of the group home you mean uh now it hasn't come up but if that did what would be your steps like what would be done at that point uh well i'd have to probably call around and ask i mean Probably be stuck in the same boat as we are right now. Right. Okay. I have no way of solving it at this point, but when the problem comes up, I'll, I'll have to look into it. Yeah. Well, maybe we can preemptively solve it for you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is Neil's resume. I have a, uh, another question off the topic. Nick, is that a koala bear on your desk there? What is that? This, this is algae. I'm sure you recognize algae from mental health first aid. Ah, okay. <laughs> nice. Their mascot. Nice. Very good. You've, you've always deal. been distracted by shiny things, I guess, instead of schools. <laughs> 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 That's true. All right. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about alcohol withdrawal. Uh, we've talked about other drugs, but alcohol withdrawal um, is, is, I think, a pretty important issue for us to talk about and mostly like how to recognize it. I hear a lot of stories from people who who have had withdrawal seizures when they're in detention. Um, and it's with alcohol withdrawal, uh, we're on the clock. Uh, once it starts, the clock is ticking. 
and we have a certain amount of time to intervene and get them to uh, kind of on the right medicines. Otherwise, uh, they're, they're at risk of having a seizure and or dying. And so just wanted to talk a little bit about kind of how that course goes and how to recognize it and maybe what to do. Because it's a perfect example of, of jail diversion. And even if it's, even if it's just delayed diversion, um, you know, even if they're not being kind of hospitalized long term and they're still going to be um, charged, uh, we want to get them either to a hospital or into medical um, at, a, at a detention facility. So um, I'm going to get a little geeky for a moment just to explain what happens and then kind of we'll talk about just how to kind of how to recognize it. So the geeky part, just for everybody's understanding, is that um, for there are, there are these two main chemicals in our brain that are in control of like keeping us awake and kind of making us have the opposite of being awake. Like one chemical called glutamate, it is excitatory. It makes the brain, the nerves in the brain, the brain cells active. It makes them fire. And then there's this other chemical, GABA, and GABA like chills out the brain cells and makes them work less. And so, and always the brain wants to have a balance between these. So alcohol increases GABA. That's why it makes you tired. That's why it makes you have, lose your balance. That's why it makes you have slurred speech. That's why it makes you think slowly. It's because literally your brain cells are not acting as quickly or as strongly through the, because of this GABA effect. And that's alcohol directly increases that. Um, <clears throat> it's also the same thing that benzodiazepines do, like Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan. They have, they're essentially to our brain, they're freeze-dried alcohol, essentially. They, they work at the exact same receptor in the brain, and they increase this GABA, and that's why they're intoxicating. And that's also why they chill people out. And so what happens is if we're drinking large amounts of alcohol or we're taking benzodiazepines every day, we're essentially increasing so much GABA, all this GABA, 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 that our brain wants to stay awake. So what it does is it increases its own levels of glutamate, the excitatory chemical, the excitatory neurotransmitter. So that we can stay awake because we have way too much GABA and, we, and it wants to be awake. We want to be awake. So it finds a balance now of, of super increasing glutamate to match the GABA. So then if we stop drinking, if we stop taking Xanax all of a sudden, right? And so let's say we've been drinking, 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 and then we get arrested and we get detained and we don't have access to alcohol. We're not supplementing that GABA. So now we have low GABA levels, but our brain is used to having them high. So it still has high glutamate levels. So now we're out of balance. We have so much of this excitatory neurotransmitter. We have a lot of brain activity. And, and that, is, that is a seizure when we have too much brain activity. It's not balanced by the GABA anymore. So that's why in acute withdrawal from either of those from alcohol or benzodiazepines, we can have a seizure. The other thing that glutamate does is it's linked to our stress response, our fight or flight response. So, so it, lots of activity and also lots of adrenaline. So again, when we lose all that GABA from stopping, if we can't have a drink and we have all this glutamate, we also have tons of adrenaline. So we get high blood pressure, high heart rate, super anxious and agitated, might get very sweaty, might have panic attacks. These are all early warning signs that a seizure might be next. And so that's kind of the geeky part. So, so, so what, we, what we see clinically, the early signs of alcohol withdrawal in those first, let's say, 24 hours, and it could be as little as six hours, 12 hours up to 24, we, we see all those changes in vital signs. So anybody who has been drinking, it's why it's a great question, I think, when you are assessing somebody or you are detaining somebody is, is you know, how much have you been drinking lately? 
right? Or especially if you have a blood alcohol level, which we'll talk about next. So if somebody has been drinking a lot and now they're getting high blood pressure, high pulse rate, they're sweaty, they're, they're agitated, maybe they're shaking like a tremor. They look like they're freaking out. It not, they might not just be nervous because they are being arrested or detained. This could be the early signs of withdrawal. So in those first 24 hours, you can have those, those vital sign changes. And if somebody's been drinking heavily and we have those, we need to anticipate that they're going to go into, that their withdrawal will get worse. They're already in early withdrawal. We call that simple withdrawal. Then at, at about 24 to 48 hours in that window is where we tend to see seizures. And so somebody can have a seizure from that withdrawal now because because the alcohol has totally left their system and they just have all that glutamate, all that ex excitatory neurotransmitter. Doesn't mean that they have epilepsy. Epilepsy is when you have a seizure condition that's not caused by something else. It's not due to withdrawal. <clears throat> but they can have a, a seizure and sometimes the seizures can just happen and they can end and it's not a huge deal. Of course, somebody can have a seizure and they can fall and hit their head, which is a, can be a huge deal. They can have a seizure and when the seizure starts before it takes over the whole brain and they're just shaking without control, they can do kooky things like start swinging at people or start hallucinating, stuff like that. Or they can have a seizure that doesn't stop and that's the most dangerous type. We call that status epilepticus, just meaning that it's a seizure that doesn't stop and you can't breathe very well when you're seizing like that. And you tend to, if you're vomiting or just salivating, you tend to swallow that or breathe that in rather than swallow it. And you can choke on that and get pneumonia. And also all your muscles so tight like that, a weird thing happens when your muscles are sustained like that, isometric contraction for a long time, they start to break down and they release a chemical that can uh, stop your kidneys from working, cause kidney failure. We call that rhabdomyolysis, and, and that can kill you too. So this is why it's, it's so important to, to notice, to recognize this. <clears throat> so the other thing that I mentioned is having hallucinations. So if this starts to happen and somebody is having hallucinations now, they've stopped drinking because we've detained them, and they're starting to hallucinate, and let's say that they don't, it's hard if they have a history of schizophrenia or something like that. Only about 40% of people with schizophrenia have heavy alcohol use. So it's not a huge number. But if they don't have a history of psychosis and, and they're in withdrawal and they're hallucinating, they need to be seen medically like ultra stat, pronto. Because that's what we call delirium tremens, the DTs. And the DTs are absolutely life-threatening. And what's a bummer about the DTs is that even if they don't kill you, they can, they can destroy parts of your brain <clears throat> that are super necessary. For instance, they can destroy the part of your brain that forms new memories. And you can end up like the guy in Memento. Do you guys see that movie Memento? There's a movie where the guy, he has like a head injury, and then every day he wakes up and he doesn't remember what he did yesterday. So he's like, it's almost like Groundhog Day for him. He's stuck in the day he got his brain injury. And that can happen from DTs, where we get what's called an anterograde amnesia, where we can't form new memories. And, and it's almost like we're a goldfish. Every couple minutes or every couple hours, it resets. And we have no idea where we are. We have no idea that it's been six years since this happened. Horrible. Another sign that that's happening is if people start speaking in gibberish. And I mean like absolute gibberish, like you can't understand what they're saying, but they look like they're, like they're speaking normally. And that's because of our, we have two language circuits in our brain and one of them can get um, deranged in this alcohol withdrawal. <clears throat> and so people can be thinking the right thing. What they're thinking is, you know, I need to go to the bathroom. But when that thought comes out of their mouth, it's like cat, tonic, light bulb, tree, horn. It just makes no sense at all. So again, if somebody's in withdrawal and they start speaking and it doesn't make any sense, they got to be seen in medical absolutely stat because they are losing their brain. Uh, and this, sometimes this can be irreversible. <clears throat> the, 
the risks of having a bad withdrawal like that, what we call complicated withdrawal, which means that you have a seizure or you have the delirium tremens, is if you've ever, like if, so we might be asking somebody during booking or during detaining or whatever, if we know or, or suspect that they're a drinker or we ask them if they've been drinking, have you ever had a seizure before when you were in jail or did you ever have a seizure before when you couldn't get a drink? Because if they have, then the likelihood that they're going to do it again is very high. Um, it's one of the biggest risks. Another one is if they're acutely sick. Let's say we arrest somebody and they have like a chronic illness. Let's say they have a pneumonia, something like that. Um, if, if on intake, I don't know if, if vital, how often vitals are checked, but if they have a fever, again, this suggests that they're at greater risk of going into alcohol withdrawal and having complicated withdrawal. It's just because they're already sick and their, their, their body can't really, is not at its best anyway. Um, <clears throat> the other way to predict it is, um, so do you guys do blood alcohol levels or do you do uh, breathalyzers rather? When you're detaining people, is that fairly common? Not fairly common, but let's say that it was done. Let's say, let's say they did it roadside. They did roadside field sobriety or something like that, and they had them blow, um, right? I mean, a perfect example of somebody who might go through withdrawal is somebody who's picked up for DWI. So if, if they've blown, if they do a breathalyzer, if the number is 0.3, so it'll either come out as 0.3 or 300. Those are the same. It, it matters what the units are. By definition, if we do not have tolerance at 300 um, or 0.3, we should be unconscious. That's like a, a general rule. So if somebody is conscious and they have a 0.3 or above, and that's plenty of people out there, you know, if you're drinking a fifth a day, that's not a problem. So if you are still conscious at 0.3 or above, you, are, are, you have a much higher chance of having a complicated withdrawal, having a withdrawal seizure, because we know that you've had so much. You've been drinking so much to get your tolerance up that your, your GABA levels have been high, so your brain has also elevated its glutamate levels. So anybody who blows 0.3 or 300, it's not a given that they'll have a seizure, but they're at a much greater risk of having a seizure. <clears throat> and so they should be watched. They should be monitored. Um, and, you can, and again, we can just monitor their vital signs. That's the early warning system. Um, the treatment for any of this, there are two forms of treatment mainly. And one is we give benzodiazepines. That's, the, that's like the main standard. We give typically lorazepam, uh, but there are other benzodiazepines used. It matters where you are. Because, and that's to stop the seizure, to stop the withdrawal. It's not like a long-term treatment. It's a short-term treatment. Some of us also give anti-seizure drugs to stop the seizure, and that's, that's also fairly easy to give. Uh, we usually do like a, a seven to 10-day course of something like Tegretol, um, and it just it can prevent the seizures. Um, but obviously, we've got to get somebody to a medical setting, medical in a detention center or an ER when this is occurring. And that's the basics. It's pretty, it's pretty simple stuff, but we have to have awareness of it. We have to look for it. Um, any thoughts or questions from anybody about alcohol withdrawal? So this is really just about the withdrawal, not the long-term treatment of alcoholism. We can talk about that too, but I wanted to cover withdrawal. Because so many people go through it when they're detained. Any thoughts or questions? Anybody want to know anything else specifically about it? Please. Niels Rosema, I have a question. So you, you went over the timeline. Can you tell us the transition in the timeline from seizures to DTs? So, what, I mean, the, what, the way that the model goes is that from 24, really, to 48 hours, that's your big seizure window. 48 to 72 hours is where you can have all of this, the DTs and everything. But but that's it's a little bit artificial because you can have you can start to have DTs after 24 hours. 
Um, you know, I, I think putting it in all these different kind of categories is a little artificial. The most important thing is that like those first 24 hours, you tend to have more of just the vital sign irregularities. And after that, the risks are bigger, but you know, some people will have a seizure in less than 24 hours. It really matters how they're eliminating it. And also, um, so people who are that intoxicated, they might not be a good historian in terms of when their last drink was. And so sometimes our clocks aren't accurate either. I have one other question. This is Neil's but, but, So let me just finish that. Yeah, yeah, sorry. 72 hours if for alcohol. If we're out of 72 hours, we're probably good. So if it's been 72 hours and we're confident in that timeline, then probably if they're having difficulties, it's due to something else. But if what we're talking about are medicines like benzodiazepines, those can last a little bit longer, especially if it's something like Valium, although that tends to not cause these types of seizures because it comes off so slowly. What is your ethical or clinical take on using alcohol to treat DTs? Yeah, great question. So when I was a medical student in Florida, <clears throat> um, we had, they had a beer and they had like uh, whiskey on the medical formulary. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, well, if this is what they drank, um, let's just give it to them to control their withdrawal. It's not really considered okay anymore in hospitals. Um, I don't know of any hospitals that still have those on the formulary. It's just kind of considered bad form <clears throat> just because there are other risks with those. <coughs> and maybe they have an addiction to them and it's like, yeah. anyway, for real. So we have these medicines and the medicines we're very certain about what they do. And so it's really, we use medicines now. Um, but I guess as a follow-up, if you're in the field and you can't take somebody in and they don't have al access to alcohol, I mean, or you're trying to convince them not to. Right. Or, no, it's know. a very real-world thing. So, like, for instance, sometimes somebody will come to the emergency room and they have a high blood alcohol. And, and just for your guys' education, so sometimes in, in psychiatry, our standard is we don't want to discharge somebody from the, from the emergency room if their blood alcohol is above 0.08, because we don't want them to get in their car and be at least at that limit, right? Understanding that New Mexico actually doesn't have a, a minimum legal limit. Um, so, so it actually, but I'm not sure that's the best thing for the patient because sometimes we'll keep people in the ER so long that they start to go into withdrawal. Good system. And so sometimes the, our thinking is like, well, if there's if we really don't have any other reason to hold them, like let's let them go so they can go home and have a drink and not go into withdrawal, right? It's tricky. It, it's tricky. So if somebody's using high amounts, large amounts of alcohol, let's say the perfect example is a fifth a day. So a fifth a fifth a day. That's the tall bottle that's thin, right? The tall bottle that doesn't have a handle on it. It's 750 milliliters. It's 17 shots. It's, or, or rather, it's 17 standard drinks, rather. Um, and, that, and a standard drink for a shot is an ounce and a half of 80 proof. So that's a, it's a lot of drink. So if somebody's drinking a fifth of a gallon a day, a fifth a day, we do not want to like, suggest to them, just stop drinking. Don't have any more to drink, right? Because the likelihood that they have medically dangerous withdrawal is pretty big. We might suggest that they get into, into treatment, but like that's somebody who we would want to send in Albuquerque to Mats, uh, where they can, um, or, or, or the MOTU that's at Mats, that's the medically observed uh, treatment unit where they can have medically supervised withdrawal, you know, or an ER or something like that, because they might need a medicine to help them. Um, so, so, right. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we don't want to prevent people from having a drink if that's going to make things worse. Um, you know, somebody's using methamphetamine, you know, and they stop, there's no, there's no danger to that withdrawal. They might, it's an uncomfortable withdrawal, but it's not dangerous. Uh, opiates, same thing. If they're not pregnant, it's not dangerous. If they're pregnant, it is. 
And so that's another one of those situations where like, if I see somebody who's pregnant and using heroin on Friday afternoon, I tell her, don't stop using heroin through the weekend. We're going to get you into a clinic on Monday, but like, don't go through withdrawal because you could lose your pregnancy and bleed out. Um, whereas it's not dangerous for, for a non-pregnant female or, or, or a male to go through opiate withdrawal. Yeah, that's so, a good example. So yeah, they, they're, these are real issues. Uh, TJ Camacho, LCPD. What about is there any and them going into withdrawals? Is it will they go into withdrawals quicker or lo longer if using uh, prescription medications with alcohol? Uh, and well, so it matters what prescription medicines they are, right? Uh, probably the so most common ones. Right, right. So for most medicines, it doesn't change this. Um, but but let's say their medicine is Xanax. Xanax causes more withdrawal seizures than any other benzodiazepine. And so um, so if they're using Xanax and alcohol, first of all, using them together is dangerous. But also, if they stop them both, they're very likely to have a Xanax withdrawal and then have an alcohol withdrawal. Um, Xanax just kind of comes off of the receptors in the brains very fast. And so that's why it causes so many withdrawal seizures. It's one of the problems with that one. But like, let's say they're taking Prozac or they're taking an antipsychotic. That doesn't necessarily put them at greater risk of withdrawal per se, it's, it, it slightly increases the chance that if they do go into withdrawal, that they'll have a withdrawal seizure because all of those lower our brain's threshold for having a seizure, but not by very much. And if they're on anti-seizure medicine, that would protect them. What about um, painkillers, Vicodin, um, in, the, in those lines? Yeah, so that's not going to make it more likely for them to have a withdrawal from alcohol or a withdrawal seizure. But you raise a really good point, which is that if somebody's on opiates and on alcohol or on opiates and benzos and, and they go into, they're detained, so they both stop, they're going to go into withdrawal for both of them. So what's really important, this is why it's important that we take a history about alcohol because if we only know about them using, let's say, Percocet or Oxycodone, and we don't ask about alcohol, and they start to go in withdrawal, and we say, oh, well, this is opiate withdrawal. It's just it's safe. We don't have to do anything. We might miss the fact that they're also going through alcohol withdrawal and have a bad outcome. So when people are in mixed withdrawal like that, we treat the alcohol. We treat the dangerous one. We can treat them both, but if we have to just prioritize one, we treat, we treat it as if it's alcohol withdrawal since that one's dangerous. Does that answer your question, TJ? Yes, thank you. Cool. Yeah. So, so I think it's it's good to ask, and and you know you can just ask people kind of how much do you drink? Um, so if somebody's drinking five or more drinks a day, that's a that's a pretty good rule that they're at risk. Um, certainly, if somebody's drinking something like a fifth a day, or again if they blow and they're above 0.3 and they're conscious. I think it's good to ask. So, you know, if you smell alcohol on somebody and you're taking them into custody, even at booking, you know, you can be there long enough that they start to go into withdrawal. So you can, you might just ask them, have you ever had a seizure before when you, when you couldn't get a drink? Now, just because they haven't doesn't mean that they won't this time, but if they have, chances are good that they will. So then we just want to keep an eye on them. Are they starting to get agitated, super anxious, pouring sweat? You know, because then we want to we want to intervene and and get them some medical attention. And so, really, I think it's important that we treat we view alcohol withdrawal as a medical issue, a medical concern, not a moral one, not not anything else. Um, you know, after we stop the seizures, then we can book them and I guess judge them all we want. <laughs> That was great. Thank you. Yeah. Any other questions about alcohol withdrawal?
I have a question, uh, Camilla yeah. Duarte. Um, does is age a factor? Like the younger they are or the older they are? I mean, it's a great question. So, so the older they are, the more likely. So, so if anybody's over sixty-five, so older age is a risk for complicated withdrawal, medical comorbidities, or especially if somebody's acutely ill. If somebody has a history of seizures, if somebody has a history of a head injury or a brain injury, they're more likely to have seizures. Um, these are all these are all risks, and then heavy and and consistent use. Yeah, it's a great question, Kamala.